Barack Obama had many determined foes in his political career, but none did he wage war on as viciously or consistently as he did against his one great enemy, cynicism. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Here he is in 2004 at the Democratic Convention. This is the speech that launched his career. In the end, in the end, in the end, that's what this election is about. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? Ten years later, he spoke in Denver about the same choice. And there's a cottage industry in Washington that counts on you just being cynical about stuff so that you don't vote, you don't get involved, you get discouraged, you say a plague on both your houses. But you can't give in to that cynicism. Do not let them win by you being cynical. Cynicism is a choice, and hope is a better choice. After the election of Donald Trump, perhaps sensing this message might be needed more than ever, he came out into the Rose Garden with Joe Biden at his side and repeated it again. That's the nature of democracy. It is hard and sometimes contentious and noisy. Uh, It's not always inspiring. But I just want you to know you have to stay encouraged. Don't get cynical. Don't ever think you can't make a difference. Sadly, it seems that Americans aren't absorbing the message. In fact, they appear to be getting more cynical. Pew polls show that distrust in government, media, organized religion, businesses, and even democracy has been declining for decades and is currently at historic lows. What is causing this rising tide of cynicism? Some point to government scandals like Watergate or Monica Lewinsky. Others blame an unjust economic system that seems skewed in favor of the wealthy and powerful. But there is one scapegoat that I think gets a disproportionate share of the blame. Postmodernism. Postmodernism is currently on steroids on university campuses. You're just a social construct, man. Get out of my face. Uh, It allows people to take a very radical stance. One reason is nobody can understand a word they're saying. (laughs) Postmodernism is notoriously difficult to pin down. But here's how it's often described by its critics. It was a system of ideas developed by French intellectuals in the 1970s, especially Jacques Derrida. Michel Foucault is another one, Jacques Lacan. There's There's a handful of them. This is Jordan Peterson a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Postmodernist thought is predicated on the idea that the ideals of modernism, so those in in some sense would be enlightenment ideals, the ideas of rational discourse and objectivity and, and say, scientific inquiry and, and the free exchange of ideas and the marketplace of ideas, that's all to be dispensed with because there are no overarching truths. That's the postmodernist stance. There are no overarching truths. Everything is up for grabs. With no objective truths, no universally held values, individuals withdraw from earnest political engagement into a state of paralysis. They feel unable to act or find meaning and are suspicious of anyone who claims they can. Postmodernism is almost always set up in opposition to the Enlightenment, the implication being that if we could only return to the supposedly abandoned Enlightenment values of reason, truth, and progress, we could beat back the menace of cynicism and return to the confident optimism of before. But there's a major problem with this theory. The Enlightenment isn't the solution to cynicism. It's the cause. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. 
In this episode, we look at how the roots of modern cynicism can be found not in 1970s French theory, but in the Enlightenment itself. We also explore whether cynicism might not deserve its bad rap. What if the answer to declining trust in institutions isn't more hope, but more cynicism? To understand modern cynicism, it's important to understand ancient cynicism. I spoke with Dave Mazzella, a professor at the University of Houston, who wrote a book about cynicism. When you talk about the cynics, the cynics are a movement uh, from the very earliest moments of uh, antiquity, around 400 AD, and they're one of the sort of varieties of Socratic philosophers uh, who are sort of hanging around Athens at that particular moment in time. What really distinguished them from other philosophies and philosophers at that time was an insistence that philosophy was really best expressed not through any doctrine, but through really the best and truest way of life. Their most famous member was a man named Diogenes, and he became famous for two things, shocking people and making them laugh. Diogenes is a kind of famously difficult, irascible individual, and he has a lot of good jokes. He's probably the funniest ancient Greek philosopher there is. So when somebody says, what's the best kind of wine, Diogenes, Diogenes says, another man's wine who's paying for it. Another story is when Alexander the Great, impressed by what he had heard, came to see Diogenes and asked him if he could offer him anything. Diogenes, who had been sunning himself, replied simply, please stand a little to the side. You're blocking my son. The basic idea behind Diogenes is living a life according to nature, ignoring human conventions as unnatural, and really trying to live as publicly uh, as possible um, in a, a kind of society that he deems from the outset as, as in some way or another corrupt. So that contempt towards conventional views and lives is kind of inherent in uh, cynicism, even from antiquity. You might think of them as the original hippies, making fun of bourgeois respectability. The positive philosophy of the cynic was as minimal and as unintellectual as possible. A life according to nature means kind of trying as much as possible to avoid any kind of luxury at all. But uh, the cynics considered anything more than a kind of simple uh mantle, they would call it in English, I mean, just a kind of cloth around your loins, um, a luxury. Half naked, living on the streets, sometimes defecating or having sex in public. People started calling them dogs, which is where the word cynic comes from, a Greek word for dog-like. Diogenes himself didn't mind the nickname. Other dogs bite their enemies, he said. I bite my friends to save them. He embraced shamelessness as a means of purging himself of false social values. But behind the provocative and shocking behavior was a more sophisticated philosophy, a rejection of civilization in order to live more in harmony with natural instincts. All right, so we've got a picture now of the original meaning of cynicism, but what do we mean by cynicism today? Here's Elaine de Baton in one of his School of Life videos. In certain quarters, cynicism has a distinct kind of glamour. It sounds pretty tough not to have too many hopes and to claim to be able to see through the dreams of others. Cynics will tell you that everyone is selfish and weak, that the system is rigged and driven by greed, that you can never succeed, so it's pointless and contemptible to try, that all ideals are ridiculous and that do-gooders are only out to show off their own supposed virtues. 
Modern cynicism, then, might be understood as a deep distrust of the intentions of other people and pessimism about the possibility of social progress. It's no surprise that those nostalgic for a less cynical time look back to a period remembered for its optimism and confidence in human potential, the Enlightenment. 18th century France was the epicenter of Enlightenment thinking, and philosophers like Voltaire, Diderot, and Kant proclaimed that reason could help usher in a new world free from the shackles of the past. But as Sharon Stanley, a professor of philosophy at the University of Memphis, argues, the paradox of the Enlightenment is that it led to both optimism and cynicism, certainty and doubt. Contrary to depictions of the Enlightenment as this time marked by a sort of great progressive optimism, um, we can also see, or we should see the Enlightenment as sort of like a seedbed for cynicism. These new Enlightenment doubts about the ability to really know anything for sure is one of the key ingredients that led to modern cynicism. But it's not the only one. John Paul Sartre famously wrote that hell is other people. During the Enlightenment, people started to discover this for themselves. For centuries, social relations in Europe had been extremely rigid. Where you could be and who you could interact with were tightly regulated and determined by your social class. But during the Enlightenment, new social spaces like coffee shops, cafes, and taverns emerged. It enabled classes to mix together like never before. These new patterns of sociability are often seen as crucial to the development of what the German theorist Jürgen Habermas called the public sphere a place where individuals of diverse social backgrounds could come together freely to discuss social problems. The hope among some Enlightenment thinkers was that through dialogue and reason, society could reduce needless waste and suffering. But according to Sharon Stanley, others believed that this new social mixing did come at a cost. There's something kind of much darker um, underneath that uh, surface optimism in, in the account of sociability which is that in sociability, what we encounter in other human beings is only ever their surface, right? We never really know what lies beneath uh, the performance that they're giving us when, when we interact with them. And so that opens the ground for all of this doubt and uncertainty about what people's real motives are. If you read the encyclopedia articles written during the time of enlightenment about sociable practices, there's like this deep paranoia about um, hypo- hypocritical social actors. And that... Um, kind of constant skepticism about other people's motives and desire to unmask their hypocrisy, I think is a, a key factor um, in producing enlightenment cynicism. One can never be certain if people's sort of sociable performances are sincere or not. Part of the reason for this is that more people were living in cities where social class was simply harder to determine. And the main reason it was harder was a result of the growing role of commerce and the wealth that the new merchant class were acquiring. France's economy expanded dramatically in the 18th century, thanks largely to lucrative colonial trade. France would send wheat, wine, metal objects, building materials, and African slaves to their colonies in exchange for sugar, cotton, tobacco, and coffee. Many of the merchants involved in the trade became very rich, and the production and consumption of luxury goods became much more common. Many of the Enlightenment philosophers were quite optimistic about the civilizing effect of commerce, that it would lead to peace between people and nations. But some had misgivings. There's also this account of how commerce degrades um, our social interactions with each other. 
precisely because we never know what somebody's selling us. We, we always have to doubt their motives. We never know if they are being sincere or if they are simply trying to profit off of us. Commerce paves the way for potential exploitation of other human beings. In an environment where increasingly things can be commodified, it leads to doubt about whether things have any authentic value or whether their value is just determined by a sort of devious and fluctuating marketplace. Um, so commerce has a very, I, I think, sort of acidic effect on um, our capacity to both to trust others uh, and to believe in the authentic value of objects. Of all the critics of commercial society, none were more ferocious than Rousseau. He called for a return to a simpler life in harmony with nature. He saw himself continuing the legacy of the original cynics. Here is Dave Mazella again. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau ended up using uh, Diogenes as a kind of image of himself as a philosopher uh, because he was rude, because he hated commerce in, in all sorts of ways, because he was against the luxury and the corruption that, that came with, uh, with commercial society. But unlike the city-dwelling Diogenes, Rousseau became so disillusioned with modern society that he withdrew completely. He abandoned his friends and family and died in isolation. His cynicism was paralyzing and left him unable to productively engage in the world. But Sharon Stanley thinks one Enlightenment thinker can help us think about cynicism in a more productive way. Denis Diderot. Diderot was the chief editor of the central project of the French Enlightenment, the Encyclopedia. But it is in one of his works of fiction where we see a possible solution to the problem of cynicism. Rameau's nephew is a work written in the form of a conversation between an unnamed narrator and a man known only to us as the nephew of a famous composer, Jean-Philippe Rameau. The nephew is a thoroughly cynical man, and most of the work is about him justifying his approach to life to his more morally upstanding friend. Here's an example of some of the dialogue. And did you steal the money without any guilt? <laughs> None whatsoever. People say that if one robber steals from another, the devil laughs. These people are overflowing with the fortune they've acquired. God knows how. They're from the court or financiers or great merchants or bankers or business people. I was helping them pay some of it back. In nature, all species devour each other, and in society, all the classes feed on one another. We bring justice to each other without the law getting involved. These exceptions to the general consensus about which people make such a fuss, calling them tricks of the trade, are nothing. And in the last analysis, the only thing one needs is to keep one's eyes open. Aaron Stanley argues that we can find in Remo's nephew a more nuanced way of thinking about modern cynicism. So for me, the figure of the nephew in that dialogue sort of represents the culmination of all of these different tendencies in the Enlightenment that push Enlightenment thought towards cynicism. And so you see moments in the dialogue where um, the nephew seems to represent sort of like intense epistemological skepticism. You see moments in the dialogue where the nephew represents this intense social cynicism. You see moments in the dialogue where the nephew really sort of plays the character of the salesman, right? The, but the very sort of cynical salesman who's trying to sell something that he knows is actually crap. And so in The Nephew, all of these different strands come together. One reading of this dialogue is that it stages an encounter between uh, enlightenment optimism and its opposite. But on my reading, 
both characters represent the Enlightenment, right? That Enlightenment optimism and Enlightenment cynicism are not exactly opposites, that they are part of the same kind of mode of thinking. We should see moi and Louis as two both conflicting, but also mutually reinforcing sides of the Enlightenment itself. Remo's nephew suggests that cynicism is simply part of the modern world. There is no utopian escape to nature that will solve our social problems. The only reasonable response then is to just jump in, do the best you can, and keep your eyes open. Once you lose the idea that nature could be sort of a retreat from all of the sort of hypocrisy and ugliness of modern society, then you're just stuck in that hypocrisy and ugliness, right? And you have to figure out a way to navigate it, but you can't escape from it. Unlike Rousseau, who does still cling to nature as a possible escape, in The Nephew, you see a kind of full-blown cynicism whereby the first step is this diagnosis of society as irredeemably corrupt and hypocritical, But the second step is a kind of willing complicity in that, right? A a recognition that since there is no escape, that you have to play the game too, right? It's the only game in town. So the cynic is someone who doesn't try to escape from social hypocrisy, but actually figures out how to manage it and really in some ways immerses themselves in it. This interpretation suggests that rather than being opposed to collective political action, cynicism might actually be necessary for it to work. And ultimately, this is my attempt to kind of redeem democracy, right, from the claim that, oh, if we're all cynical now, then democracy is doomed. And in order to save democracy, we have to inoculate it from cynicism. Look, we live in kind of late capitalism, right? And like, we live in a thoroughly commodified world. Um, We live in a world of like this sort of crazy mass media, internet culture. The idea that we could possibly inoculate democracy from cynicism seems absurd, Um, So instead, we might want to think of cynicism as a tactic that people can use to kind of navigate all of the the doubts that people rightly should have about our contemporary moment. Um, And that cynicism might actually be a way that we can sort of continue to be political subjects and political actors without becoming disillusioned beyond repair. Rousseau's ultimate response to his diagnosis of the hypocrisy and corruption of the modern age is to become a hermit, effectively, right? It's to retreat from the world entirely. And there's no basis for politics at all in that kind of stance. So cynicism is, at the very least, worldly, right? It encourages us to continue engaging with the world. And I say, like, look, we we can perhaps think of cynicism not as this, like, plunge into total corruption, but rather as a recognition that you can't be a subject in late modernity without getting your hands dirty, uh, but that getting your hands dirty doesn't have to mean... Um, that you give up all hope in the possibility of a positive political project. The Enlightenment may have given us modern cynicism, but it also offers ways of thinking more positively about it. It teaches us to be wary of the myth of political or moral purity. The world is complicated and messy. No one has all the truth or all the goodness. But moving forward is possible, perhaps by abandoning naive hope in favor of becoming a little more cynical. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, 
or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a Hub and Spoke show called The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one painting at a time. The show is hosted by a brilliant art historian named Tamar Avishai, and she's able to do the seemingly impossible, make art history exciting and relevant. One of my favorite episodes is about this Degas painting of an old woman that is exactly the kind of painting I usually stroll right by in a museum. But with beautiful clarity, Tamar shows how this painting is actually artistically and philosophically thrilling. Check it out at thelonelypalette.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.